What have you seen in the theaters recently? The last thing I saw was The Gentleman, and uh, that was a really fun time at the theater. I'm a big fan of Guy Ritchie, despite having not seen Lockstock, which I feel like might still be the general, like the favorite among his biggest fans. But I've seen everything else from him, and uh, and it was fun finally getting to see something in his style in the theater. Cool. I haven't seen that. I, I don't honestly know if I have a whole lot of interest in it, but I mean that doesn't mean I won't ever watch it. This last weekend, I went and saw Birds of Prey or Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, as it's been retitled. And, you know, it's gotten good buzz from a lot of people. A lot of people like it. It's another, quote, good entry into the DC universe. But it just, it's not a movie for me. Um, it was a little too vulgar, a little too violent for my taste. And Margot Robbie is good. Like, I, she was one of the two redeeming qualities of Suicide Squad, I thought. Smith. One of exactly two. Yeah, yes. <laughs> her and Will Smith. So it was nice to see more of her. And there were parts of the movie that I really liked. And Ewan McGregor even was really fun as a villain. But a lot of it was just like, eh, I don't know if I want to watch this again. <laughs> and so that, that was my experience with Birds of Prey, at least. I haven't really found myself able to build any sort of desire to, to go out and see the DCU films recently. Uh, unpopular opinion. Uh, I really love Snyder's vision, Man of Steel and BVS and all of that. And I feel like the ones lately have just turned into Marvel light. Mm-hmm. And like the trailers for this interested me because I, I did like that they were leaning into the just really stylized kind of action. But even still, it's just I've found myself Every time I thought, okay, I think I may go see that today, I was like, or I could just stay home and watch something else, and, and that typically won out. <laughs> I, I mean, I liked Shazam, but I never saw Justice League. I did, obviously, I love Man of Steel, and I really liked BVS Ultimate Edition. That's the only cut of that I've, I've seen, is the Ultimate Edition. Mm. Um, yeah, improvement. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I want to go back and see the original version. I, I'm perfectly happy with the Ultimate Edition and really enjoyed it, um, but... Justice League didn't really interest me. I'll, I'll go back and listen or watch that eventually. Uh, Shazam was good, but then Birds of Prey, just not my thing. So that was that. And then I had the palate cleanser the next day of Jumanji, the next level, which I really loved. So <laughs> it worked out. There you go. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and do this thing. I'm going to hit the button. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of Cinescope. I have with me James Hamrick, first time on the show in a while. And you know what, James? I was thinking this earlier today. Is this your first time on the show not with Gabe? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because we previously talked about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Those are three lengthy episodes that the three of us did. And I think Gabe and I talked about How to Train Your Dragon 2 once. But for some reason, we just never circled back around and got you on solo. So I'm glad that's finally happening. Yeah, me too. Excited. I get to, you know, Gabe gets to stop rubbing that in my face. So uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll finally be even. Well, how about you introduce yourself to everybody listening? Tell us what you do, uh, where they might know you from, that kind of stuff. Sure. I'm James Hamrick. I first started podcasting probably four or five years ago, roughly, uh, with, uh, with Gabe Green, uh, who you mentioned. Our first podcast was called The Underrated Podcast. 
we both felt like we were consistently really enjoying films that either had low audience reviews or low critical scores or, or both. And we wanted a platform to like defend these films that we loved and, and argue for their merits and stuff. And that was really fun. And we went for a, probably a couple of years doing that, uh, or maybe even more. But because we created that, that parameter for ourselves, we found that we were slowly losing material. And so then we, uh, we pivoted into a, a different podcast called the Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And uh, on this podcast, which is the one we're currently doing as well, we pick film franchises and we just we review it film by film. Um, that's because both of us also just really have a love for long running franchises. And even when we don't love them, there's still a fascination with them. Just looking at them and seeing course correction, you know, seeing whenever series double down, whenever they find something right. And it's just really interesting because franchises more so than anything else are the most, I feel like, accurate reflections of like the audience of the day. And so we, we have a lot of fun watching, uh, watching through these series. Um, we just finished the MCU and, you know, that spans a decade. And so really getting to cover an entire decade of film within the context of a, of a single series is, is a lot of fun. You know, I've actually been going through and catching up on some of y'all's episodes. I've been listening to the Star Wars ones recently. So that's been fun going back to those. And you've made me want to revisit Solo for the first time in a long time. In fact, I think I've only seen Solo once in theaters, but I have it on 4K. So that'll be a good opportunity for me to revisit it. So definitely go check out Franchise Fatigue. And you know what? I've, I've, I, I like to plug my things too. <laughs> I've been on an episode of that one and I was on a couple of episodes of the underrated podcast. So we had you uh, We had you on for John Carter, wasn't it? Yeah, we did John Carter, and we did uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for uh, uh, that's right. the first franchise fatigue I was on. Anyways, I'll put all those in the show notes because it's a great podcast, and you should go listen to it. But now we're here to talk about La La Land on Cinescope. So uh, let's do this thing. La La Land released on December 9th of 2016. It was directed by Damien Chazelle who uh, up to that point had only directed two films. It's Guy and Madeline on a park bench and Whiplash, and he has since directed First Man. It was written by Chazelle. The music is by Justin Hurwitz, who is Chazelle's creative partner, I suppose you could say, because his filmography as far as scoring films is Chazelle's filmography. So they work together on a lot of things, and I know that partnership is still continuing going forward. They went to school together this movie stars Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, and John Legend. So, James, as we always do, how about you fill us in on your first experience with this movie, if you remember it? My first experience with it was actually pretty funny. I had wanted to see it ever since I saw the first trailer. Whiplash, I'd seen, instantly became one of my favorite films of all time, and still is. I I hold, like, anytime I'm asked if there's such thing as a perfect movie, I say, well, Jaws and Whiplash exist, so there has to be, because they are perfect. <laughs> and so all, all of the trailers for La La Land really excited me, and not a lot of the guys in my friend group were interested, I guess understandably. Uh, but I was like, I, I just, I really want to see this. And so there was a night where we were having Ultimate Frisbee, and I dipped out about halfway through to join the girls' trip that was going to see La La Land, because... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I had to take my chance. And I was blown away by the creativity in his direction and just like how alive and vibrant the film felt, how energetic 
the musical numbers were and and that I know a lot of people were disappointed with with the ending just you know we all were rooting for something obviously but just the the way it ended kind of pulled the rug out from under my feet and I just I walked out of the theater <laughs> just in this in this weird funk like I that ending is perfect that ending is exactly what should have been done but now I'm I'm feeling all of the emotions and so it quickly became one of my favorites and and has maintained that sense it's probably still in my top 10 favorite of all time so yeah I've got I've got a lot of love for this film and that's it's pretty much been maintained I don't remember a lot of the promo material for this movie, though I think I do remember seeing trailers, and that probably is what led my interest to it. Although when I looked it up on Letterboxd earlier, I didn't see this movie until it had been out for more than a month. So I was a little late to the game, so I might have gone because of the hype. I don't know. But I did see it twice in a week when I did see it. And I don't remember if the first time I saw it was for my birthday. My birthday is January 17th. I saw it on the 16th. And so uh, it's tradition for me, at least, to go with my family to see a movie for my birthday when we celebrate it. So that would have lined up. But in any case, I saw it the first time. I liked it enough. I went and saw it the second time. I also own the soundtrack on vinyl. I own a few different versions of the soundtrack. I own both the the soundtrack album that features most of the, the song songs. I have the score album that is all of Justin Hurwitz's work. And then I have the complete album that has everything from the film in order, which is amazing. And so I really like this movie, too. Um, I will admit, I still haven't watched Whiplash. <laughs> I own it. That's another one we were talking about solo just a minute ago. I own that one. Haven't watched it in a long time. I own Whiplash. I just haven't sat down and watched it. And I, I wanted to leading up to talking about La La Land tonight because I know they also explore some similar themes that we'll talk about later. Now, more than ever, after watching this film for the first time in a few years, I really do feel the need to sit down and explore more of Chazelle's work. Because I still haven't seen First Man yet either, and I own that too. So I, I'm just oh. behind, apparently. He's becoming one of my favorite working directors. I because all three of his films that I've seen, I haven't seen Guy and Madeline yet, but his latest three films are all like five out of five and top of the year of whenever they were released for me. I I I'm in love with the style. So what what is it about the movie itself, whether it's style or whether it's story stuff or whatnot, that draws you to it? Like it's. Like every aspect of this film feels like it's come from the same person, or at least the same vision. You know, like it be, just because of like you said, he and and Hurwitz have just been longtime collaborators, and so they they feel very in sync with each other. And so, the most immediate thing I notice is is you know the setting and the the color of the film is incredible. The cinematography, he's got a, a really interesting way of of shooting his films where they're they're really well composed, but there is some sense of of handheld to it sometimes, and then others of where it's just it feels like it it's just got this perfect line that it's going to move through the scene, and so that's why I said earlier, just his, they feel so lively, and so on a purely visual level, the film is constantly just visually arresting to me, and then when you add in the score and the songs themselves, they become the perfect thing that these images needed. Hurwitz's score, both in this and First Man and Whiplash, they're probably my favorite scores of the decade, or at least really high up there. And so when you, when you have just a very strong style or aspect or across all of these several aspects, and they just they come together the way they do, I don't know, it, it's just something that becomes immediately noticeable to me. 
I noticed a lot of the camera work in this watch through as well. There's lots of long tracking shots, like in the opening number, uh, Another Day of Sun, and in the Lovely Night sequence. The camera is like in constant motion, but it's not a dizzying kind of constant motion. It is energizing. Then there's other moments in the film where the, like for when they go to the jazz club for the first time, as soon as we're in there, there are camera cuts that match the music. And he uses that several times throughout the film as well. Like uh, when they go to the jazz club later in the film, after they've started dating and it's summer now, uh, we cut back and forth between Mia and dancing and uh, Mia mm-hmm. dancing and Sebastian playing the piano as if this is his way of dancing with her. And it's that, that quick cut uh, that, that really matches the energy and the style of the music that, that, Sebastian was raving about earlier in the film when he was talking about why he's passionate about jazz music like this. So it's a really creative filming technique. Just the concept of the film though, is what immediately stands out to me. This idea of bringing back the musicals of old, the, the choreography, the big sets, the, the color, the, the optimism in one respect, but then wrapping all of that up and then grounding it in reality and saying, yes, those were great, but real life doesn't always have a happy ending and exploring what that might look like in this fantastical setting. A source of contention among me and my co-host Gabe is how well this film functions as a, a musical because there aren't as many songs as there are in a lot of other musicals and they become increasingly less frequent and what you were saying reminds me of like why I really love that because you open up with what is just this pure unapologetic ode to the MGM musical, you know, like mm-hmm. bright colors, incredibly well choreographed, huge staging. Um, and then we get um, probably what is like as a total package, my favorite musical number, which is someone in the crowd going mm-hmm. from the apartment into the streets, into the, uh, into the actual party itself. And some of the stuff he does with, like, the crane shots and that are just amazing. Like, rising above the crowd and dipping into the pool and spinning into the cut with the fireworks is is really great. But then the story settles in, the characters settle in, and this fantastical, colorful world, it's just it's so bright and fun and unapologetically joyous, transitions in, into a color palette that more resembles the real world you know, as we move through the seasons. And I remember the first time uh, in the theater, I was thinking, like, it's it's been a bit since the last song. But I, I feel like that's so intentional because, like you said, it's a celebration of, of everything we loved about those while slowly pulling us back into the real world, but not in this, like, depressing kind of way. I know a lot of people find the ending depressing. I... I don't. I, I see it as very bittersweet, and mm-hmm. and I don't think that the the ending of the film completely divorces itself of these musicals it was celebrating at the beginning. You know, because we get that classic, you know, the end written across the screen and everything. So I I like the way that it balances between the, the classic musicals that we love and a more modern sensibility in its storytelling. Well, you know, even looking back at like Wizard of Oz, for example, I don't know if that's necessarily the hallmark of uh, classic movie musicals, but it is a classic movie musical. And that movie ends with some bittersweetness. She has to say goodbye to all of her friends in Oz first, and then she's home and it's a happy ending. And we sort of get some of that here. We get to the end and we have that, oh, what may have been 
kind of dream sequence. And then we get that final glance at each other that sort of says, yeah, what we had was great. Yeah, what we could have had would have been great. We still got what we ultimately wanted minus each other. But that's okay because that's life. And that's why I don't find it depressing because of those, you know, he he didn't cut it short with the final glance. You, you still get the mutual smiles exchanged and the nod. You know, I, I feel like despite the the genuine, there is a level of sadness to it because she does spend that entire time daydreaming about what could have been um but you still get that those last looks exchanged where to me it just it feels as if there is this tiny moment of of mutual congratulations to the other person you know like he's got his jazz club she has her career and you know she's found someone as well and so despite that immediate you know rug pull of seeing each other uh, I don't think it dwells on that up until the very end. I think, you know, we we celebrate what we had, then we look forward to to the future, and we we keep moving. It's it it ends in what I feel like is a very mature place. Looking at the title of the film itself, La La Land, it, you know, it's an alternate name for Hollywood, and it's it's a whimsical kind of name for Hollywood, but it also sort of communicates what the film is exploring about how almost chasing these kinds of dreams in this kind of place is folly in a certain respect. It's, it's really hard. <laughs> Ultimately, everybody at the start of the film is optimistic in the opening number. Everybody's singing about how, you know, every day we try for our dreams and every day, you know what, we get knocked to the ground, but Hey, guess what? When we wake up tomorrow, it's another day of sun and my dream has hope anew. And so Sebastian and Mia both have parts of this within them. There was this one shot specifically at the beginning of the film that I noticed where uh, I think it's Sebastian walking down the street or no, actually, I think it's Mia because that makes it more meaningful. It's after the party where her car has been towed and she's walking and she walks by this mural that is faded. It's cracked and it has old movie stars on it like Monroe yeah. and Charlie Chaplin, like these dreams of stardom are in the past and that they're unachievable now because those people have already done it and it's a new time now and there's so many other challenges. So I really like even just like little moments like that, that try and communicate the the story of the film, the title itself, trying to communicate the story of the film before we even get to the characters and their relationship. Yeah, there's a lot of different visual moments that, that have no dialogue, but just do so much in setting the tone and, and visually representing the story. Like, like you said, that, that kind of sense of old Hollywood just kind of looms over so much of this. And his, his shooting style evolves and adapts for whatever's going on in the film. Uh, like you said, like the, the jazz club scene is like the movie at its most energetic and fun and it's, it's full of life. And then you compare that to the way he shoots their, their argument when he, you know, he burns uh, the cake and everything, and there's a, a moment where the the smoke comes out and the fire alarm starts blaring, and he leaves, and it's this very loose, handheld, unsturdy shot that's just holding on Mia as she's sitting there, you know, just having the entire argument just sweep over her, and then she gets up and and walks out, and that film or that scene just feels so much different. From all of these other moments, it's it's really it's really cool to me the way he's able to use this camera work and and the setting and everything to 
go along with with the emotion and vibe of, of the scenes. One last thing I had to say about the story um, is how instantly classic it feels, how instantly iconic some of the shots are, uh, like the dancing during Lovely Night or the dancing among the stars at the observatory. I mean, that that, that is such a unique thing to do. And immediately you see stars and you see a silhouette of a couple dancing in it and you're going to think of this film. It's one of those instantly recognizable, probably even from people who haven't seen the film, uh, which is the same, I could say, for Singing in the Rain. I haven't seen Singing in the Rain, but I can tell you a shot from it if I saw it, you know? I, I think what this episode is really revealing is that there's too many movies that I haven't seen and I need to sit down and take the time to watch, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> now, as far as characters go, how about we just start with Mia? What do you have to say about Mia? I really like the character a lot. I gravitated toward her pretty pretty early on, especially you know whenever he he sneaks onto the the studio lot and they're walking they're just walking through all of the the sets and the and the locations and she's talking about you know growing up on bringing up baby in Casablanca and so I'm like man these this is what I grew up on you know I I grew up like age 7 watching Turner classic movies and so having having this character whose dreams are anchored in these classic films i was like ah oh, this is this is my kind of person this this story is already very like it's resonating a lot with me and, and what she wants to do it means a lot to me as well and uh and i think stone just plays the character so effortlessly likable like there are so many little touches that she brings that are probably not even even in the script or at least if they're in the script they're not in you know in there the way that she she plays them completely. Like I even like just little moments of whenever Sebastian's playing and, you know, she's pretending he's singing about her and she, she has her little moment there and moves on. There are these different moments that could come across as maybe obnoxious if in, in the wrong hands, but she just the way she carries herself through the film, I just find really charming. I love that scene when she's sort of like getting revenge on Sebastian after yeah. he charged past her and he's, he's, playing Iran in an 80s cover band. <laughs> in that scene, the 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 lead singer says, tickle those ivories. And then he like <laughs> plays a, a single note scale. It's like so antithetical to tickling ivories. He's holding a guitar. <laughs> but anyways, as far as Mia goes, right off the bat, we get her in that opening audition after leaving the coffee shop. You get the sense that life hasn't really been going her way as she tries to leave and gets knocked into with a bunch of coffee. And so her shirt's stained going into the audition, and then she goes up and, hey, everybody else is there, and their shirts aren't stained, and they all look like her, except maybe they're taller, or maybe they're prettier. And when she's having her audition, somebody else walks in, and it, it just seems like she's not a priority. So she's already kind of disillusioned by her life in Hollywood, pursuing this dream uh, at the start of the film. She doesn't want to go to these parties where everyone is trying to talk themselves up for the purpose of furthering their own careers, when she goes to that party where she does see Sebastian later, she has been trapped into a sort of pseudo date with this guy who is talking about, oh, the script is something I'm working on. And, oh, it's already gotten a lot of attention and everybody's saying a lot of things about me. Probably not, guy. You're just talking yourself up so that you have a chance with me. So she, she hasn't yet thrown in the towel but she does seem like she might be close. And then in comes Sebastian. And it's the encouragement from him that leads to her 
eventually creating for herself after more failed auditions. It does the same way that he does as a jazz musician. He's creating music. He's responding to others and compromising. She learns to do the same for herself. And if I'm going to have a role, then maybe I need to write it for myself. And that that's just, it becomes another creative outlet for her because of Sebastian. Now, what about Sebastian? Do you have anything to say about him? I'm a huge fan of Ryan Gosling. He's one of my favorite working actors. I feel like he bring, he's he's super versatile. Like like watching this and Blade Runner, uh, twenty forty nine, <laughs> like like a year apart, he's phenomenal. And so I, just talking about his performance, I think he's fantastic. He's one where his the script has him, you know, if if the the dialogue or or the script itself gives potential for Mia to maybe be annoying. It just dives into it fully for him. Like this, like this self-absorbed, pretentious kind of guy who's just, I am the purest. I am the one saving jazz. And again, it's an example of like you look at the at what's on the paper, and you think this could go poorly. This might be somebody who just he's too self-obsessed to be able to root for. But then Ryan Gosling plays him, and he's just immediately likable. His struggle becomes something that you do sympathize with and you are rooting for. And so I, I think writing like that is strong if you know the person you're going to cast. And and in this case, I think it's just they were able to write this character who who is very passionate, impassionate the way he is. And yeah, I, I, I like both of these leads. And, you know, they're obviously both written in a way where they are what the other person needs and the film rests completely on, on their struggle. And so if you get either of these wrong, it doesn't go great. And so like with uh, Stone and, and Mia, I, I think he he's able to do everything that the movie needs him to do. Well, what's interesting to me about Sebastian is, yes, I think he at least starts off the film and spends a good portion of it sort of self-obsessed. But I think that his self-obsession is to compensate for the large amount of self-doubt that he has. Um, yeah. You know, many times in the film when he's he's having these impassioned conversations where they're explaining his love for jazz or whether it's at the dinner later and he's arguing with Mia, he's not looking. He's not making eye contact. He's like yeah. down, looking down, not making eye contact, thinking inwardly. And it's this, this self-doubt that causes him to sort of get wrapped up in what he has to say. And it's not always a selfish thing, I don't think. It leads to him taking the job with the messengers as he here overhears Mia's phone call with her mother trying to convince her that he was working he's working to open his own jazz club. I think he's saving up for it maybe. That serves as an additional catalyst for a self-doubt. Oh, well, if I want to keep Mia as a girlfriend, it sounds like I'm going to have to get a real job. And oh, here comes John Legend with a job for me. So he makes that sacrifice of going for the job rather than sticking with his dream. And that's he does that sort of for Mia. Then when it comes to the argument that he and Mia have over dinner, his self-doubt causes him to lash out against her, saying, oh, you only liked me when I was unsuccessful because it made you feel better about yourself and about your own career, which I don't think he really necessarily means, even though he does sort of back himself up and says, no, I'm not kidding. It, it's yeah. being defensive when he knows that he doesn't have these better explanations for why he gave up on his dream. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring this up because we actually were we had a, a very similar conversation. The most recent uh, episode we did was Far From Home, and we were talking about why we thought that MJ as a character works for us in that movie. And 
you know, because she is this kind of like looking down her brow at the rest of the world. And I, you know, the reason I really like her character in that is because all of that feels very superficial and it's just this shield to protect her own insecurity and her own doubt, uh, her self-doubt. And I, and I feel like that's key to making these kinds of characters likable. Um, if all it is is this self-obsession and then you reach a point in the film where you do stop caring, but because there is so much behind the character of Sebastian, this this deep-seated passion that he has for this, the like you know the conversation he has with his sister early on, just fills the movie with a lot of context. You know, we we have a better idea of where he is and what he's been through, and you know this reminder that this Samba Tapas place is for you know like what is but what could be, and you know maybe it's his fault that's not happening, and yeah, I, I think because we have we have enough insecurity in the character himself and and the motivations make just enough sense he really becomes a person as opposed to just like an entertaining character on the screen what do you have to say about the two of them as a couple i really i really love them i'm ready for just a a straight rom-com where we do get like just the happy ending because i I think they've got (laughs) great chemistry there's so much fun to watch on screen uh, just thinking through like the the montages, you know, of of them dancing in the, at the the station and the the sequence of them at the observatory is just incredible. And uh, even before that, just the scene of them at at the movie theater, as you know, their their hands touch and they lean in for the kiss, and and then the the film burns and they just they kind of sit there laughing and it's it's that awkward moment, but it's not super awkward because you know they're both kind of smiling and the. I don't know, it's the situation itself just becomes fun and it leads to, you know, the rest of the night. It's just all of it works. And I, something that's amazing to me is, you know, there's so little dialogue. You know, at that point, dialogue is gone completely. Mm-hmm. But you just believe their relationship and and believe that they both care about each other. Um, and the film sets that up really great. I, I think they're... Um, their first dance number together is maybe the most fun in the film. And like, you know, the, the idea of them thinking the opposite of what they're actually singing about. And it's, it's one of my favorite, I I watched birds for the first time last year. And despite that coming out decades before La La Land, watching that film really reminded me of what I love about their relationship here, where you have these, these personalities that really butt heads initially and so much of the fun of the film is watching them become closer and grow together as the film facilitates that. And again, like that, if neither, or if even if just one of those characters doesn't work, the movie doesn't work, but because I love both of these characters on their own, right. And I love them even more when they're together. It's yeah. The the whole film comes together. I was going to point out the lack of dialogue in that observatory date as well. It's entirely without music from the point that Mia says, I have an idea after the film burns up to the transition to summer. <laughs> and so it, it's it's really a great chance for the music to be highlighted and for their chemistry, their pure chemistry, no words needed to be showcased. Uh, and what I like most about them as a couple is that they do inspire each other to work harder to pursue their dreams uh, the montage that does happen from the summer after they start dating is it's, it's it's full of dancing, it's full of him playing jazz, her auditioning around, and then transitioning to writing her own play. It's a really happy 
moment of the film while the jazz is playing and they're, they're enjoying each other's company and they're enjoying exploring their own and each other's dreams. So that's what I admire about the most. Now, the, the, it is tragic how they're, they're tragic is maybe not the right word. It, it's, it's bittersweet how their relationship does end with him going his way and her going hers, but it still comes from a place of encouraging each other. The reason they're not together at the end is because Sebastian said, if you get this job, then you need to go all at it. And you know what? I'll stay here and I'll do my own thing. I'm back on track now, thanks to you. After she sort of chastises him for giving up his dream so easily. So even when they're not together as a couple, they're still encouraging each other to pursue their dreams, which I think is a really unique thing to explore as a relationship in a movie that is supposed to be colorful and fun and dancey happy. And I think that last moment is is really what helps me love his character so much is because it gives him that that last act of of total selflessness. You know, he has nothing, I guess, personal to gain outside of watching his friends succeed, you know, because he's you know, she's the one who asks the question, you know, what happens to us? And and he says, I don't know. So this is this is all for her. And and I I've seen a lot of people have issues with the way their relationship ends up. I find it a fairly shallow criticism, but I've seen people say, you know, essentially like they've just they've chosen the material over relationship. You know, they're they're too obsessed with this that they can't give this relationship the attention it needs. And I, I think that that argument only works if you can say 100 percent that they were perfect for each other. And despite how much chemistry I think they have, I think the movie does naturally set up reasons of why it might be best this way because they are both very these proactive go-getters who needed that push to get back into that mindset but they i don't i think as their relationship grows you do kind of see the seams in it and they they do come to a place where they understand you know maybe what we had before isn't best but we can still appreciate that life brought us together so that we can we could have been this for each other to get to this place. And so, um, yeah, I, I, again, and that's, that's part of why I love the ending so much is because I, I don't think it's this black and white kind of binary thing. I think there's a, it finds a lot of nuance in, in where it ends up. The only other character to really mention, and there's probably not a lot to say about him is Keith, John Legend's character. And I, I, I didn't want to introduce the question. Well, first off by saying he kind of has a point <laughs> He has that speech yes. to he has that speech to Sebastian saying, you know, when when jazz itself was born out of radical necessity, how can you expect it to continue? How can you expect it to have life by sticking to tradition rather than being radical and reinventing it yourself? So at face value, that argument is a pretty good one. And it's sort of ultimately why Sebastian goes with them. But then when you look at the music that they're making, man, Start a Fire is so darn catchy. And it's supposed yep. to be, but it's also supposed to be like this evil representation of being the opposite kind of music that than the jazz that Sebastian wants to play. It, it's catchy for the sake of being catchy. It, it, it's cookie cutter. It's pop music. And in that way, the way it's used in the film is genius. And so it, it, I really think Keith is an interesting character because he's not necessarily wrong, but what Sebastian wants to do isn't reinvent jazz. He, he wants to let jazz continue and introduce people to, to the kind of jazz that he likes. Mia has that quote where she says, people love what people are passionate about. 
And so that's sort of the conflicting version of events from what Keith is saying. Keith is saying reinvent to survive. And Mia is saying, if you just love what you love and you show people that love, then they're going to go with you. And thankfully, after going down the wrong path at first, Sebastian does come around to her way of doing things. And you know what? Sebastian is ultimately inspired by Mia. He does name the club the way she suggested and does use the logo that she drew up for him. So there's something to be said about all of that. Yeah. And and the film really is a celebration of the old, you know, not not necessarily at the cost of the future, but there is a sense that, you know, there's a reason we love what's come before. I, I, I agree with your point. Like it is, it is weird the way the film presents Keith. And I feel like I, w- I would love to just sit down with Chazelle and, and Hurwitz and just be like, so what do you, what do you mean with everything you're saying with, with Keith? I, I would love to just hear their perspective, uh, their perspective on all of that. Um, because again, like every time I watch it and I get to his moment, I'm like, he, he does raise good points. Are you in love with what jazz produced? Or are you in love with jazz in the sense of, of the music that innovates? And, and that's a really interesting question. The movie doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on that, but, but I do like, I think my favorite thing about that is it keeps Keith from being too one dimensional. Like he serves a function and a purpose in the film but they allow him to do that without just being the typical, like, we need conflict, you know, we're, we're pretty far into the film, we need something to put the characters at odds with each other, let's introduce Keith and the temptation that he he brings, and let's just make him really, like, sleazy and, and annoying, and that's, I just uh, watched, yes, I feel like I'm bringing up all the movies I just saw and <laughs> making them relevant to the discussion, but I just watched uh, yesterday. And while I really enjoyed that film, Kate McKinnon's character is just a ridiculous cardboard cutout. Here's everything evil about the industry. And whenever conflicts are born out of something just so perfunctory and obvious, it doesn't work as well to me. And so I, I just, I think as an addition to the story and and the perspective he brings, what could have just been a lazy character is actually somebody who does bring an interesting point into the film. Yeah, I mean, I think that Keith, his his purpose is to say, not necessarily just to introduce conflict, but to say, this way is viable too. Like, without Mia there, Sebastian going with Keith would have a career that would keep him well off for the rest of his life. He was making... a year, at least based on the initial proposal. And that was before he signed a contract. So he was making more money than that, probably. And so they're both viable is what I think Chazelle is saying. Keith isn't the bad guy. Keith is just a guy with a different viewpoint. So going on anyways, (laughs) uh, talking about the music a little bit, all the songs are so great. Another Day of Sun is a fantastic opening number. You have Someone in the Crowd, you have Lovely Night, you have City of Stars, which did win the Oscar. There's just a lot of great music in here that work. They work in the capacity of being dance numbers for some of them, some of them being character growth songs or not exposition songs. This isn't that kind of musical, but character development songs might be a better way of doing it. The way City of Stars is bookended at, at the beginning and sort of towards the middle of the film and how it changes in context between those two moments. And I mean, Lovely Night is, is used as the platform for their relationship to, to jump off. Their, their relationship is different when compared between the beginning of the song and the end of the song. The story 
continues and evolves through the music. And I, I think that's some of the best musical numbers and songs and musicals are, are the ones that integrate them in the plots as opposed to just, and now we stop to sing some more. Mm -hmm. But what I also really love about this film, and this isn't like a new concept or anything, a lot of movies do this, but the way that they place either reprises of songs that we heard before or foreshadow songs that are yet to come in instrumental versions during key scenes. For example, the instrumental version of Audition plays early in the film as Sebastian and Mia are walking around the WB lot and Mia is telling Sebastian about her aunt who inspired her to become an actress. We hear that music that early in the film. And then right after that, we get the City of Stars instrumental. And so we get both of these characters sort of main themes when they're first genuinely getting to know each other. And then that becomes uh, later, it doesn't become, then we get introduced to Mia and Sebastian's theme. And let's see, Another Day of Sun returns later in jazz form when we get when we when we meet Keith uh, in the jazz club. And then after that particular scene, that moment, it continues, but it becomes almost like elevator music, background music while they're back at Sebastian's place. And then it reprises yet again during the end sequence. Uh, so the, the way that they use these these songs to highlight different parts of the film and different moments in these characters' journeys in relation to the lyrics and in relation to the way we first heard the song or the way we're going to hear the song later is really, really extremely well done. It is cool to hear like that that uh, musical evolution. I mean, even just in the actual songs themselves, you know, like hearing the, the two different performances of, of City of Stars in those two different contexts, the same melody with the same lyrics are giving very different emotions and feelings. And, and part of what I love about that ending sequence, and, you know, he, he won the, the Oscar for Best Director. Honestly, we could have, I could have just seen that last little epilogue and I would have still said like, okay, yeah, he, he deserves it because it's incredibly well-directed. Uh, and I love how that sequence is like a culmination of so many of the themes as well. Like, you know, we we get different themes of the different songs uh, as they're moving through all of these different locations and stuff. And, you know, as it, it builds to that in, incredible uh, moment of them in the room with the reflection, it's all of these themes that we've heard again and again and again over the course of this two-hour film, but in a completely new light. And I think that's, that's what I was uh, referring to earlier, just this idea that every... Every aspect of the film just feels like it is coming from a place of, of vision and of, you know, there's a singular idea behind this. And the, the movie just feels so focused on, on a sound and a, and a visual. There was one more song reprise that I wanted to mention because it is really significant. Lovely Night plays after the audition moment when they're talking about where they are in relation to each other. So while they're reconsidering their relationship and what's going to be next for them, and if there is going to be a next for them, we're hearing the song that did jumpstart their relationship at the start of the film. So again, very, very well placed. Great music all the way around. And the score album, like I will say, if you want to explore this music more, go get the complete album that is on Apple Music and on iTunes. It is literally every single music cue. It's the instrumental tracks. It's the... The song tracks, it's all of it. It is so good. Definitely worth a pickup. Now, this is new for you, James. Uh, we, it's new for everybody. We just introduced it in last week's episode. 
uh, where we talked West Side Story, the themes slash relevant section of the podcast has now just been changed to impact. How has this movie impacted you or how has this impacted people around you? So same sort of concept, but just more concise impact. What do you got? For me personally, like I said, I grew up with just like really loving classics at a young age. And, and I love, I've got a poster of Singing in the Rain in my room. I, like I really, really love that movie. And my favorite musical for the majority of my life was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. That movie is just freaking magical. But it had been a long time since we had a really great musical. Um, I hadn't seen some of the ones that people may point to. I, I, I haven't seen Les Miserables yet. So, uh, but that's definitely not going to capture the same feeling that, that these kind of musicals do. Yeah. That's a very different thing. Yeah. And, and so the, the personal impact that this had was just, it gave me what I could only like look back to, you know, I can, I'm very happy to revisit all of these musicals that I love, but it was so great to go and sit down in the theater and watch and hear something like this, something that is so reminiscent of the things that I love while also being its own fresh thing. Uh, and so I think the one of the impacts it had on me was it, it just reinvigorated my love for the musical and rekindled that. And I, I really hope that this, along with the success of The Greatest Showman, while I wasn't the biggest fan of The Greatest Showman or its, its music, I am happy that it came out and La La Land came out and they were both well received, at least by audiences, you know, and we, we've got In the Heights coming. And so to, you know, talk about this film's impact beyond even me, I think it's potentially, you know, it's having a hand in bringing back the musical. And I, I really hope that happens because there's something about the musical theater experience that, you know, if if, if La La Land, my, my love in that first viewing of La La Land is, is indicative, I'm, I'm, I'm going to happily see a lot more of these, hopefully. Well, we do have both In the Heights and the West Side Story remake coming later this year. That's so true. we do have two big budget musicals coming our way. Um, now, as for personal impact for this movie, you, I mean, everybody knows I'm a musician. And so I have lived some of these experiences very much so about the, the compromises you make for your career. I mean, I graduated college in late 2014 and I didn't get a job doing what I wanted to do until later in 2017. So it, it took me a long time to get to where I am now. It, it and it, it's a series of steps. It's a series, it's a series of events in your life that get you from point A to point B and they're not always happy endings. So I, I relate to this film a lot in that capacity as far as some general themes and stuff that do take away from the film. I mean, that that's, that's definitely at the forefront sacrifices or compromising in the right way. Sebastian, sacrifices his dream of opening his own club and playing jazz in order to make money in order to have a more steady job so that he can keep his girlfriend. But in doing so, he sacrifices basically his relationship with Mia at the same time because it was, it, it becomes too much of his focus. And then later he makes the right kind of sacrifice where he's, he sacrifices his relationship with Mia in order to help her reach her own dreams with the audition and with pursuing acting once she does get that big break. Now Mia does some of the same stuff in the film. She early in the film ditches her boyfriend to go see rebel without a cause with Sebastian. Whereas later in the film, Sebastian misses her one woman show for his gig with the messengers, a photo gig. 
So there, there's all kinds of different versions of sacrifice presented in this film uh, or compromise. And that goes back to jazz. I mean, he has that whole speech. Sebastian has that whole speech about what jazz is. It's about compromising with each other. And one person comes to the forefront and then steps out of the way so the other person can come up. And that's exactly what is happening in this movie. This movie is jazz. They are making sacrifices and compromises for each other. Uh, so that that is a really unique theme brought to the forefront in in the fact that the the focus of the film or the focus of one of the characters of the film, jazz, is really what the film is about without you maybe even knowing it. Yeah, I never even thought about that. To that end, there's also just the idea of encouragement and relationships. I mean, these are just general things that don't require as much discussion. But when Sebastian is busy touring and he makes that surprise dinner for Mia, she doesn't lament that he hasn't been around to spend time with her, to be a proper boyfriend and be around. What she laments is that he's given up on his dreams. So she's more encouraging him being a full person than selling out and abandoning her and whatever. It's more about, well, you said you were going to do this for yourself. So why aren't you doing this for yourself? So I love that kind of encouragement. And then he does the same thing for her when he goes to visit her in Nevada to tell her about the audition. And she says, well, I'm not going to do that. And he, he yells at her in the street because it's crazy to him that she's not going to pursue her dream after she was so upset with him for not pursuing his dream. And the, the one last thing I had to, to say, is, at least as far as like impact or themes go, is the bittersweetness of the film. As I said at the start, this movie is about mixing the magical quality and optimism of old school musicals while also grounding it in reality, which isn't always so clean cut. It isn't always so happy. Real life doesn't always have to have a happy ending. And that last look that they do share with each other, like they both got everything they wanted except for each other. And that sucks. But at the same time, it's okay. It, it really does sum up what the film is about is, and it's the same thing I, I surmise that whiplash is about is that they are people who have dreams who are making sacrifices for that dreams, sometimes at the detriment of others and sometimes for the benefit of others. Um, and, that 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 latter one features more in this one. Yeah. Anything else to say? Any final thoughts or anything like that? I, I guess uh, the last thing that I, that I'd say that I haven't really talked a lot about is one of the reasons why I think that in the in the of the modern musicals this has become a favorite of mine is is the reliance on on the sets and the choreography. Like I, I've definitely made it known that I, I love all of these numbers, but just the way he, he uses locations in the songs and uses the physical objects. Like one of my favorite moments in the, the final epilogue sequence is, you know, it, we're seeing the audition again, but from that silhouetted point of view, and then the lights come on and it turns out it, it's them. And then the camera spins as the globe comes into frame. There's just a, a physicality to all of this. And I, I think that goes, hand in hand with with these ideas that you're talking about of just of being a film that captures these feelings of these older films while still feeling very tangible and very real so yeah i i i would have been disappointed if i wasn't able to talk a little bit about just how much i love that everything great visually here is like it's a set it's the way he moved the camera it's an object that spins into frame you know, there's not a, a reliance on on CGI and all of this other stuff. It's just really, really strong choreography and set design. 
I have just a couple of final quotes and moments that I wanted to mention before we close up. At the beginning of the movie, when Sebastian is talking with his sister, uh, he says, why do you say romantic like it's a dirty word? That, that's a, a good glimpse into his character and his, his view on life. And he also later says to Mia, they worship everything, they being the people mm. of the world and the people of L.A., if you want to call or the people of Hollywood. They worship everything and they value nothing. And so he's trying to change that. He's trying to get people to value things that are actually of substance, which in his mind is jazz. And then there was one final moment that I wanted to point out, which is not like a subtle thing. It's very obvious, but it's still a special moment when Mia has made her big break. It's five years later and she goes back to the Warner brothers lot and she walks into that same coffee shop that she used to work at. And she goes and she asks for coffee and something that's really genius in the writing here is that she orders two iced coffees and we haven't seen her husband yet. So we assume that this might, or we hope that this might be for Sebastian, but it echoes a moment early in the film where a famous person walked in and they tried to give her complimentary drinks. And she said, Oh no, I insist. And she leaves money and a tip. And so she's able to do the same thing at the end of the film because she has achieved her dream. And so I like that scene because it just shows it, it, it's, the, the confirmation that she reached where she wanted to reach. She was able to get that experience exactly the way she sort of envisioned it because that's the way she had experienced it on the other end of the counter. And one line that I really liked that you brought up earlier was, was Mia telling Sebastian, you know, like people love what other people are passionate about. <laughs> um, and that's so true. I, I, I have listened to podcasts on subjects that I couldn't be less concerned with, but when you have the right personalities and who, who are passionate about things, there is something infectious about someone else's love of something. And for a film to like embrace that as part of its identity and, and main like thematic points, you know, cause she states she doesn't like jazz at first and he doesn't seem too concerned with, you know, with her career trajectory. And they, they kind of grow to love the the opposite's passion because of the passion itself. And and so I, I always like that line just because of how succinctly it puts that idea of if you love something and you commit to something, there's going to be an audience. I like that quote too. And it just reminded me of <laughs> Cinescope because, I mean, the tagline and the way I've always marketed the show is we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. And so that, 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 quote in particular rings really true with me as well. So anyways, if that's all we have to say, I think that is the end of the 85th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, James, for joining me. It was sort of a last minute thing. I had a guest scheduled for this week and he had to step away. And so I said, Hey, James, you want to come in? Are you available, please? <laughs> and so you came in and you picked a great movie off of my list that I've been wanting to talk about and it gave me great reason to explore the film again. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. I, I, like I said, I love this film. And because of what we do on Franchise Fatigue, this isn't one that we would get to. So I'm happy for any platform to just talk about how much I love it. <laughs> well, contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to Apple Podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It's a big help to the show. It helps with visibility so we can get some new listeners. Hit that subscribe button also so you're notified of new episodes. And if you have any feedback or ideas that are longer form that you want to send directly to me, you can email thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. 
Now, James, where can people find you online? You can uh, find us over at the, the podcast that uh, has already been mentioned, the Franchise Fatigue Podcast. Uh, you go to franchisefatiguepod.com, uh, and you can also follow us over on Facebook. And uh, Gabe and I, along with some other friends, uh, have a Facebook group called The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group, which we made to be a place where we can talk about the whole series and its entirety, the shows, the movies, the novels, in a positive light because there's a lot of divisiveness in that series now. And so we wanted to create uh, an area where we just talk about the things we love in it and why we love it. So that's the other big, uh, big platform you can find us on. Great. All of those will be in the show notes. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And you can find my other podcast, which has since ended uh, but we're, we talk about all of the episodes of NBC's The Office. It is called An American Workplace. You can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. And show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And once again, thank you so much, James. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm excited for the next one, whether it's on my show or yours. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Cinescope. Have fun and celebrate movies. You know, I I almost was like, what if I came to Commerce and we recorded together, <laughs> which we should do. But uh, I bought the uh, the Back to the Future trilogy. Ooh, so, have you watched them yet? I haven't watched it. Yet. Okay. I've got a uh, in March. I've got uh, like three consecutive days off, and so I'm gonna I'll go through the trilogy. When in March? Um, it's the 16th, 17th, and 18th. Okay, I think that might be, that's not my spring break. That's a week after my spring break. I don't know. I'd love to be there uh, for you to watch those. Um, maybe, we'll see. <laughs> I'd love to, yeah, if, I mean, you, if you'll great. have me or whatever. Yeah, sure, that, that'd be super cool.